Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Hey folks, I am super excited to tell you a bit about today's new sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, MMC hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, O'Teal Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available. Spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com moods to learn more. Osiris. Moods and Modes is presented by Osiris Media and made possible thanks to our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm probably best known as a professional guitarist. I'm also a writer, a photographer, and someone who occasionally gets told to keep his opinions to himself on Twitter. This podcast will involve music and guitar, but it may take us to some unexpected places as well. So, thank you for joining me, and let's do this. This is Moods and Modes, episode 22. I'm Alex, and I probably don't need to explain who that is. Of course, that's the one, the only, Pat Metheny playing And I Love Her by Lennon and McCartney. And we are continuing with Pat Metheny, who is our guest in episode 21. This is Pat Metheny, part two. So we're going to pick things up right where we left off. I don't want to spend too much time up front, but just a few things to mention before we do. So in episode 21, which was part one, I gave a fully fleshed out, highly detailed synopsis of what Pat means to modern music in general, the guitar community in particular, including myself, as well as the world of jazz. But as that quick sample you just heard illustrates, it's not entirely fair to categorize Pat as a jazz musician. It is one part of a much bigger picture. And it is hard to imagine anybody who likes the Beatles not appreciating Pat's version of that Beatles song. 
Now, elsewhere in the episode 21 intro, which is technically the intro for this episode as well, and you know what that means. If you haven't heard it yet, hit stop, go back to episode 21, and listen, I'm watching you, to quote Robert De Niro. In that intro, I spoke about how some of Pat's music, like the song we just heard, can be described with adjectives such as intimate, soft, maybe even soothing. I also mentioned that Pat has other music that is the diametric opposite and might be described as jarring, dissonant, some may even say disturbing. I'm kind of fascinated by this side of Pat. And of course, as he said at the end of episode 21, they're not sides. They're all part of the same thing. So anyway, Pat's dissonant music, free jazz, whatever you choose to call it, and he doesn't seem to have much use for labels, uh, is something that we do get into depth on in this episode. We also spoke about some very important associations with folks like Jaco Pistorius and Joni Mitchell. And as long as I had him here, I couldn't resist throwing in a few questions in the style of Tim Ferriss. And if you're not familiar with Tim Ferriss's podcast, he tends to interview very successful and productive people, many whose names you might not know, such as Silicon Valley angel investors, but others whose names you definitely would know, such as Jerry Seinfeld, all of whom are incredibly good at what they do at the top of their field and beg the questions, what do you do first thing when you get up? How do you decide what to focus on? Do you have a morning routine? And stuff like that. I was amazed at what Pat had to say, and I think you will be too. So without any further ado, here is part two of our interview with the one, the only, Pat Matheny. I had a kid, probably in his mid-20s, come up to me the other day, and it was the first time. When are you going to do something like orchestrion again? You know, <laughs> like, you know kind of like something really cool. And I was, wow, you know, that's 12. Well, it's 12 years ago now. That's about yes. a generation, right? Yes. But what I was going to say about that is that, and I understand that people come in in different ways. And often I'm then it comes to me like there's these different sides. There's yes. this side and that side, or there's this version of me versus that version. You know, if I can communicate anything in it all, is that no, they're not sides. It's mm -hmm. one thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from my perspective, and of course, I'm completely subjective on this. The point is that it's one thing, is that right. they are not separate from each other. And no, when I'm putting together this band or that band, I'm not thinking, oh, well, this is going to be that, or this is going to be this. It's more a response to whatever kind of the research that has gotten to that moment in time for me seems to be leading to, yes. and then finding a cast of characters that's appropriate for that. And then the band leader part of it, which is probably way more dominant than anything else, particularly the thing of being the band leader, who's going to write 90% of the notes yeah. that we're going to play of then finding the right cast of characters to get to that. We're also as the band leader, I want to put together a bunch of people where every person on the stage can be somebody in the audience's favorite musician on right. the stage, because that's important. And I also want to put together a band where everybody in the band feels like if they weren't in the band, the whole thing would suck. <laughs> to get all of those things in motion, kind of heading in the same way, often leads to the kind of stylistic differences. 
which are a little bit incidental to me. Yeah. With some exceptions, like for instance, question and answer. I mean, one of my main heroes in life still is Roy Haynes. Roy Haynes, right. And it's like, you know, the chance to do something with Roy, it's not unlike if I've got a new guy in the band and this guy is really good at playing even eighth notes, but he's not too great at playing triplets. I'm going to write a lot of even eighth note music because that guy's going to be in the band. So it was like that, but sort of supercharged because, wow, it's Roy Haynes. Right. I know Roy's thing really well from these, you know, 16 records that are my favorites. I mean, so many (laughs) records, right? Yeah. 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 So many. Exactly. So many eras. Yeah. That's a bit of Roy Haynes, the drummer that we were just speaking about and to whom the term legend does not do justice. He's a part of so many important jazz albums, including Pat's landmark Question and Answer, which that is from. That's the title track. We spoke about that album quite a bit in episode 21. And this album came out around 1990. And about 20 years before that, Roy Haynes had played with Chick Corea on the album Now He Sings, Now He Sobs, which many of us consider the quintessential Chick Corea album. And a couple decades before that, he had played with Charlie Parker. So when we talk about Roy Haynes being a part of all these eras of music, it is no exaggeration. And he's in his 90s now, but still going strong. Amazing. So right there in the conversation, Pat and I changed subjects, and that clip fits rather well. Did you notice that after the first few licks, he went into this melody, da 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 very singable. That's the main melody for the song, Question and Answer. And right here, Pat and I get into a discussion about melody and its role in his music. You seem to have a big emphasis on melody, which is something I've always loved. I mean, the solos and then some of the free sections maybe, you know, can go in these different directions, but there's always been very strong melodies. You know, you take some, I'm not even sure what song I'm humming right now, but pretty much all of my tunes. That's right. exactly like that. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> from the machine. About <laughs> no, but I, I do know what you mean. And, uh, well, and, yeah. And, and compared to, you mentioned Mahavishnu earlier. And it's just interesting because I think most, like a general audience would have a hard time humming some of those tunes, right? It's if somebody tried to, you play the dance of Maya for somebody that's they not probably get the, the, the line at the end that goes over the top of the whole thing. Yes. Yes. The, the yes. violin line. Yeah. Or well, uh, do, 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 da, 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 da. Yeah. They're, exactly. they're not that easy to sing. <laughs> Your melodies are really easy to sing. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So, you know, just as some, you have some thoughts on melody and. Well, in the, you know, the, the three branches of musical government, you know, melody, uh-huh. harmony, and rhythm, you can go to college for four years and study mm-hmm. harmony, right? Easy. Get, yes. Maybe even get a mm-hmm. master's and a PhD all in harmony, yeah. right? And you can definitely go into being, you know, a metric modulation master and spend your entire postgraduate time studying the meaning of 
subdivisions in the world of 158 and right. you know, whatever. Melody. And people do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people do. Melody, your theory guy is going to stand up for about 10 minutes and talk about, well, this is lyrical and this is that. And then we're going to move on. It's very difficult to quantify. And, you know, my connection to what you're talking about, first of all, I would say is the fact that I love people who are able to illuminate their improvisational ideas with a lot of clarity. And from that, I mean, Lester Young is a real model for me. Clifford Brown yeah. on the instrument. I mean, as much as everybody talks about Wes for the obvious things that we would talk about Wes about, the thumb, the octaves, all that. To me, the major thing about Wes was the clarity of his ideas and the way, and this is very much related mm. to melody, the way each idea led to the next idea, which mm. led to the next idea, which led to the next idea, which led to, and so forth. And that to me is kind of what melody is, is mm. it's the way things connect as much as what the thing is and the clarity and sort of quality of expression, soul and all that stuff that is impossible to quantify manifests itself in a line. You know, the issue of creativity kind of creeps in there too, because there's a freshness that comes every now and then that's particularly on display with improvising musicians at a high level, because that's what the job description is. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be able to come up with things that connect and unfold and sort of spool out. You know, like when I think about Stan Getz, he's a great example. Oh yeah. One he's of the most melodic. Super melodic. And at the same time, really connected kind of players. Right. Now, we're going to go in a whole other zone. Uh -huh. Are you hip to Derek Bailey? Yeah, in fact, I was going to bring him up. Well, to me, because I've Derek, heard your Knitting Factory recordings with yeah, him. To me, Derek was an incredibly effective melodic improviser within the realm of his chosen sort of degrees of what can be components as melodic functional pieces of a puzzle. Each thing leads yeah. to the next in a very coherent way. Same with Cecil Taylor. All right. So this seems like a good time to jump in and elaborate on Pat's appreciation for music that is, let's say, unconventional. So the artist he's describing is the late Derek Bailey, who was born in Sheffield, England in 1930. By the 1950s, Bailey was earning his living as a professional guitarist, doing top recording sessions, playing on the radio and even on a television show called Opportunity Knocks. So in other words, he could play normally, quote unquote, yet for some reason he was deeply driven to create sounds of which the word normal is probably not one most people would use. All right, so this type of music is not for everyone, and even for those who appreciate it, and I do, it's not meant to be listened to every day. Now, it helps to place it in context. I tend to think of it as the sonic equivalent of, say, Jackson Pollock's drip paintings. And this makes perfect sense because Bailey had started going down this path in the 1950s as Jackson Pollock was becoming influential, starting an entire movement of art, abstract expressionism. And the same is true of Ornette Coleman, who earlier in his life had been a player of more familiar sounds, such as conventional jazz and Texas blues. 
But by 1960, he had released an album entitled Free Jazz, which helped crystallize the free jazz movement and featured on its cover none other than a painting by, yes, Jackson Pollock. And I have to say the timing of this discussion is quite interesting because as I speak, previews have just come out for a new film called Fire Music, The Story of Free Jazz, a documentary on Coleman, Cecil Taylor, who Pat also mentioned, and many others. So during the 90s, Pat played with his hero, Derek Bailey, at a series of concerts. Somewhere I have a recording of it. It's called The Sign of Four, and they played at the Knitting Factory. Pat wasn't announced until the last minute. And according to the New York Times, the moment Pat's name hit the marquee, the show sold out and was jam-packed. Yet most people did not stick around till the very end. Now, this music is not available online. You can buy the CD. I haven't seen my CD in years. Remember, I got this in the 90s. But I'll play you a quick sample of Derek Bailey in another ensemble. And this is a good representation of the type of stuff they were doing. Ornette would be kind of almost like the Stan Getz of those guys, you know, because everybody can get Ornette's in, you know, it's yes. like you can't miss it. Yeah, but, isn't the Grateful Dad put, you know, yeah, I mean, Ornette, you know, Ornette was a master of communication. He could yeah. really just talk to you about stuff that was important to him. And, you know, to me, the sometimes I think people say melody, and there's a kind of, you know, almost a character of like, being singable, like a nursery rhyme or something like that, you know, closer intervals, you know, very coherent leaps of thirds and fifths and so forth. Uh And then a lot of diatonic stuff that may be true and certainly does show up that way. But I think also Stravinsky, yes, incredible melody writer, and maybe the greatest melody writer of all was Bach, Mm -hmm. where every single line is a beautiful melody and that is a really interesting thing too so we know it's functioning harmonically in a particular way and there's the whole issue of counterpoint which is related to melody too but to really have great melodies is an elusive thing it's not something you can sort of come up with a formula for and and rely on it's almost non-repeatable in a way do you think Derek Bailey's way of doing melody, you hear that, and obviously others hear that. Is that an acquired taste, would you say, or is that? Well, you get to something that's kind of interesting and important for me. I always assume everybody's hipper than me. (laughs) It used to be I could walk out on the stage, and I mean, I believe that to my core, that every person in the audience could tell the difference between Art Farmer and Chet Baker and knew... Of course, phase dance is just those couple chords, but right. you know, it's obvious that you know they could hear how that's derived from somebody who's been playing moments notice too. You know, right. I mean, to me, it was like I always assumed that it was only when the internet came along that I realized, hey, maybe people aren't getting all that oh. stuff. <laughs> you know, the comment sections of the world and so forth. But oh yes, know, but honestly, also, 
I've experienced in my own time, and I try to express this to younger cats too. Uh-huh. Most of the people who are really going to check our stuff out uh-huh. are not born yet. They're not here. Right. right. They might not be here for a really long time, and they're going to be hip. Yes. So, you know, always play for the hippest person in the room. That's my thing, even if that person is you. Right. You know? right. Because whether they're there now, they're going to be there sometime. And the reason I say that is, for instance, Bright Size Life, when it came out, believe me, nobody gave a shit mm-hmm. at all for years. You know, it was only like maybe 20 years later that I think it started to be recognized what my intention was with those tunes and by putting that band together of those guys to do that thing. and the Included time. the great Jocko. Yeah. Um, was that his first recording? That or was... Among the first, he and okay. he and I both actually made our recording debut without even knowing we were doing it on a Paul Blay record, which we thought was a rehearsal. I think <laughs> I that just showed up on iTunes. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't even aware of that. Right. And I mean, actually, Jocko sounds great on that record. I, I haven't heard I, it. Yeah. For me, when we showed up at the rehearsal, Paul had just seen some band and had rented for me a Marshall Stack and a Morley <laughs> Wawa pedal. Oh, I see. <laughs> said, I want you to play through this because I heard a guy last night and I liked his sound. So I rented his equipment. <laughs> and so mostly what you hear of me on that record, and I don't know if you remember Morley Wawa's. I sure do. Yes. Yeah. It was like a horrible, it was just yeah, like. I was never a fan. Yeah, yeah. No. And so mostly what you hear is Jocko sounding great. And in the distance, you hear me like. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a chipmunk being tortured in the in a cage somewhere right. in the back. Hey, you you got to start somewhere. <laughs> in Pat's defense, I don't think it sounds that bad, this recording he's talking about. The problem is it does not sound like him. It's definitely a different type of sound than we associate with Pat. There are some good playing moments, especially for his age. He's only like 20 years old at the time. But the whole thing was clearly not intended as an album. You can hear that it's a rehearsal, it's unorganized, and it's an obvious attempt by some unscrupulous record label to capitalize on the names of the players involved. So for that reason, and out of respect to Pat, I'm not going to play any clips from that recording. I will just reiterate that I think it sounds better than he described it. Although I have to say, a chipmunk being tortured somewhere in a cage is probably the best description I've ever heard for bad tone. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Bright Size Life thing, you know, I had the chance to make a record and the band I had been using at that time was me flying up this guy that, you know, I played with a lot in Florida. He had Mm -hmm. kind of a weird name and, you know, we would play gigs around Boston and, you know, it was people would freak out and, you know, that was Jocko. And, you know, the record company guys were interested in me playing with more established guys, but fortunately, Gary Burton who I was working with at the time was like, you know, you've got this really good band with that bass player guy. You ought to use that band for your first record. So yeah, that was 75 Jocko. I had played those couple tracks on that weather report record a few weeks before that. And I think he may either just have, or was just about to do his solo record too. That's incredible. Uh, But we were playing trio gigs all around, you know, New England at that time and me and Moses and, You know, it was a really good band. And I felt at the time we did not capture at all what that band was about on the record. We had six hours to do that record. And part of it was that I didn't really know 
what we actually sounded like, I think. <laughs> Until yeah. you, know, you hear it back on the speakers and it didn't seem familiar to me, but the tunes were the tunes. And it's that thing of like, you know, 25 years later, suddenly that record seems to have a different meaning than it did at the time. And that's why going back to what we were talking about, if, you know, if you believe in something as a musician, and it seems like what you were saying, like maybe people aren't hip to it and they can follow this, but they can't follow that. Stick to your guns, do your thing. If you believe yeah. it, it's true, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, that song, Bright Size Life, it's on the new record. You're exploring it in totally new ways. I remember it being on right around 2000 or 1999. It was on the trio record. So it's just been this great well of resources that you can come back to. And then you and Jocko ended up in Joni Mitchell's band. And I just, I'm a big fan of Shadows and Light. And some people might be surprised that you would be associated with somebody like Joni Mitchell. I think it makes perfect sense. And it kind of connects with what we were talking about with melody, too. I mean, there's a master of melody. Oh, yeah. And that band, right? It's got Brecker. (laughs) It's got Jocko. May they rest in peace. It's got you. What a band. No, it was it was a, a very new kind of experience for me, too, because, oh. I mean, that was literally, you know, right in the midst of, you know, driving around in a Dodge van, playing every gig I could possibly get for, you know, 300 bucks, but a couple hundred thousand miles on that van in a couple of years, going from that to like Learjets. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, so, I mean, the culture shock factor of it was gigantic, you know? Yeah. And I mean, that was the one and only time I've ever been in a situation that was like that. It was such a shock for me on that level. It was hard for me to even digest a lot of it, you know, as it was going on. Fungus Don Elias. Lead guitar, Pat Matheny. <laughs> We're stardust We're golden And we gotta get ourselves back To the garden mm-hmm. I don't know about you, I could listen to this all day Pat and Joni, what a combination, his guitar and her voice. And of course, that's Woodstock, which is her composition. Not everybody realizes that because Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young have a great version that was adopted by Classic Rock Radio. But it was actually written and recorded by Joni the same year, 1970. And this version came out about 10 years later in 1980 on an album called Shadows and Light. And I'm not sure why this album doesn't get the attention that some of her other albums do. Clouds, Hissing of Summer Lawns, and of course, Blue. But I think one of the reasons is it's a live album. So it's got that big rock feeling. You have crowd noise, and it doesn't have the intimacy that folks love about Joni. But it's got incredible musicians. One time that she was with this band, a band of some of the greatest jazz rock fusion players of all time. I mean, I guess if you think about it, it's understandable how this band could have gone over the heads of some of Joni's more folk-oriented listeners. 
But you had Pat, you had the late, great Michael Brecker, the late, great Don Elias, Pat's late, great keyboardist from the Pat Metheny group, Lyle Mays, the late, great Jaco Pistorius. It's amazing that they're all gone. But Pat is still here going strong, and he'll be back with us on the other side of the break. And what a great way to transition to the break with that soothing music of Pat and Joni. But we may not be done with Pat's discordant music just yet, so don't get too comfortable. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil Story Made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. So I'm going to keep things short here. We'll get back to Pat very soon. Just a couple items on the agenda for housekeeping. So first, a special greeting to all of you, but especially the new listeners out there. Having Pat here has certainly helped steer some new folks our way. So if you are new to Moods and Modes, welcome, and uh, we hope you hit subscribe and stick around. Next, I got an incredible amount of feedback on Pat Metheny Part 1, previous episode, and I'm grateful for it, and the vast majority of it was incredibly positive. In particular, I've never received so many great comments about the style and editing of this podcast. For example, a message on Twitter reads, quote, OMG, this ep of moods and modes is beyond exceptional. Pat Metheny's contribution to jazz can never be measured. Yes. But holy cow, the editing of this ep is incredible. I love the musical examples and anecdotal asides. And the interview is so deep. Unquote. Thank you, Rick, on Twitter. And I got others like that, too. Again, that's the vast majority. But there is a minority, and that includes James on Facebook, who said, it's a great interview, Alex, but for the love of God, the constant interruptions are almost too much to take. Please take some constructive comment on this. (laughs) And a few folks agreed with him, but again, that's the minority. The vast majority felt the opposite. And here's how I'm thinking of it. This is the style of our podcast, Moods and Modes. It has commentary, musical examples, anecdotes. There is no shortage of straight interview podcasts out there. And I enjoy them, but I figure why add to the crowd? And I see this more as a storytelling podcast. I believe our template is closer to This American Life, which began on the radio, NPR and also spawned a podcast series, Serial, than Straight Talk Podcasts, WTF, for example. And for this reason, it takes longer to produce an episode. That's why there's one or two a month, rather than, quote-unquote, banging them out once a week, or in the case of WTF, twice a week. So yes, we've been lucky to get some really good guests for interviews. Case in point, Pat Metheny, OMG. But still, we're not a talk podcast exclusively. That's part of what we do, but we're more a storytelling podcast. That said, I am attempting to be a little more strategic and sensitive about the placement of the commentary. When talking to Pat, the process of, to borrow one of his own titles, question and answer, is different than most. In part one, I described how hearing him speak is a bit like listening to an effective solo. 
So for this episode, I am attempting to be conscious about inserting any commentary and extracurricular material into parts where Pat and I are already pivoting to another subject. It's not always possible, but for the most part, that's how it is, and I hope everybody's happy. Finally, a few words about my own live concerts. As we speak, there are changes happening in tour dates that I am not at liberty to announce. In general, all tour dates should be accepted with a grain of salt. However, I do believe it's okay to announce that the Iridium in New York City will be reopening in November. Originally, Alex Skolnick Trio was supposed to play there at the end of September. That show was announced on a previous episode. Obviously not happening. There is a new date. We are rescheduled to November 24th. We hope you can make it. And as of just this week, Packed with Percy Jones and myself is playing the Iridium in late December, December 23rd. I seem to have this thing of playing the Iridium just before the holidays. So you can come get your instrumental fix on with AST at Iridium the day before Thanksgiving and with Packed the day before Christmas Eve. I'm sure we can find a nice Christmas melody to improvise on for you. So now getting back to Pat, not Packed, but Pat. I want to play you a little bit of Pat's synth guitar, which is a sound he's closely identified with. And it was kind of radical to have a sound like this, very unjazz. <laughs> That's called Song for Bilbao, the Beautiful City in Spain. And that was done in 1983, right around the time this instrument came out. And you have to remember, this was the time of guitars, the Lin drum machine, instruments that were used for pop music. Roland, a powerhouse then, as of now, was the music manufacturer responsible for a lot of these new electronic sounds at the time. They had a synthesizer called the Roland Jupiter 8. That's what's heard in the theme from Beverly Hills Cop, for example, by Harold Faltermeyer. And this instrument was an attempt by Roland to give this type of sound to guitarists. And it looked very sleek, metallic, robotic, almost like an instrument you could imagine the Terminator playing if Arnold Schwarzenegger's futuristic villain was a musician. In other words, an item from the early 80s that felt extremely modern at the time, but was quickly dated. And it had bigger problems, mainly that very few guitarists were interested, except for one. That's Pat again on Song for Bilbao, but this time a version recorded about 13 years later in 1996 with the legendary McCoy Tyner. And this is a great album by Michael Brecker, Tales from the Hudson, highly recommended. And it's not just on that song. That's one of my favorite songs with it, but it shows up all over the place ever since. So... Pat took this sort of relic from the 80s that nobody else wanted and made it an incredible tool for great art. 
So this next portion of the conversation took place earlier than the segments you've heard so far. It was originally slated for part one, but it was following another lengthy discussion about a musical instrument. So it made more sense to shift it here. So here, Pat tells me all about his Roland synthesizer guitar. You know, you have a synth sound, guitar synth sound, that you've hung in there with, right? And I, and I believe this was a guitar synthesizer that was on the market and it was sort of popular and then it faded out, but you, you hung in there with it and you made it a, a really cool part of your sound. And I'm wondering what that is and what does it bring out that's different from the standard guitar sound and all the other guitar sounds? Yeah. The instrument you're talking about is the Roland GR300. That came out in the 80s, right? Or is that yeah. Like- I mean, it's like we're talking actually 79, I think. And this is years before MIDI, you know, there was nothing even close to that. And, you know, even prior to that, it was an area that I was following closely. You know, there was the ARP avatar and the Hegs from Patch 2000. I mean, basically, I have in the place where we store all our old crap, I have a uh-huh. mini guitar synth museum there. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> but the GR300 remains somewhat enigmatic in the sense that what's going on there, even to the guys at Roland is Uh slightly unknown. It was something they bought from a, an engineer that came down, I think from Sapporo or Hokkaido Uh Island and Uh sort of sold them this thing that he had invented. And Mm -hmm. I think then disappeared or something. Mm -hmm. And it isn't really exactly a synth. I mean, what's interesting about it, is that the string is the vibrating element. So it's not like the string is telling something to do something. It's it. And that is fundamentally analog in nature, right? Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like the first time I picked that thing up in the music store, it was like, okay, I I can do something with this. Mm -hmm. And virtually no other guitar synth has ever had that effect on me because whatever you do, it does it. It knows if you looked at it, it exists as a sort of representation of your gesture with no if, ands, or buts. It's just is. And as far as its popularity goes, no, it was not popular at all. They discontinued it almost immediately. (laughs) Uh, And having known all the Roland guys for years, they're still chasing that a little bit. So they really got it right the first time, it seems. Well, like, right? but it's like, again, it's not like you can hook you it up to a MIDI it. anything because it's not really working like that. The technical term for it was time to pitch or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very odd thing. And in terms of my connection to it. So when I came along, I was actually kind of, it's sort of funny now, but. I was a reactionary to the Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return to Forever and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. You know, it's funny that now sometimes I get bunched in with that. I was like Wynton Marsalis or something to that, you know? You were, yeah, or Stanley Crouch. (laughs) Yeah, I was that. You know, I was like, no, man, you know, not because to me, it's like if you have distortion on a guitar, first of all, the guitar barely has any dynamics anyway. And then you really don't have any dynamics. The good thing is you have no dynamics. 
Right. right. <laughs> so, so you can play all this stuff. You don't even have to pick and you get, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. Going. It simplifies it a bit. And it's, you know, incredibly effective. And I love the Ma Vishnu Orchestra. To me, it's yeah. like, if it had just been that, man, it'd mm-hmm. be the great. But then, you know, there were a billion other people kind of imitating that. Yes. Then kind of watered it down and it was never as good as that. That's often so, the case. And so I came along like, well, I'm not going to do anything that has anything to do with that. And at the same time, I have to admit, you know, the power of what that offers is something really effective. So the Roland actually kind of gave me something where, I mean, you know, I often joke about that thing, but it's a little true. I mean, you can open beer cans at 50 yards with that thing. You know, it's (laughs) it's a powerhouse, you know? Yeah. And then, you know, with my kind of new multi-amp thing going on and delays, which nobody had really done much at all in that department in 1970, whatever, 74, Mm -hmm. it was a really new sound. And, you know, I think there's a, a thing that happens when you discover something or you stumble onto something that has a place that has not quite been defined that can be really inspiring. And that that instrument certainly did that for me at that time. And what's maybe a little unexpected is once a night, maybe uh-huh. twice a night, nothing beats it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, to me, I'm still figuring out how to play it the same way I'm trying to figure out how to play just a conventional guitar. It's really an instrument that has that sense of infinity that you want to feel with an instrument. Like, you know, there's lots to uncover here. You know, there are a few tunes along the way. Are You Going With Me is one people would talk about a lot. I mean, I could play that tune 24 hours a day. That just, Uh it's like that tune and that instrument, it's like they just kind of fit together in a way that allows me the chance to, sort of continually discuss things that are valuable, important to me as a person and as a musician in ways that I just, you know, if I picked up a conventional guitar on that tune, I'd play a chorus or two and that would be that, you know, you don't get that endless thing that you want to have on a, on a tune. Yeah. There are certain tunes you have that, yeah, where it's definitely. Or a a sound. I think there are certain sounds too, where it's like, I think once a musician discovers sort of their sound, then it's like, okay, now the gates have opened and now what can I do with that sound? Yeah. And it's so different. Like nobody else has that sound and nobody else hung in there with that thing. Everybody gave up on it. So I've had a few people that have told me kind of well-known guys that every time they would pick it up, people would say, Oh, that sounds just like. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, nobody wants that. Right. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Now, did you plan originally to have all these different sounds? I mean, you, you have that. You have the fretless sound on some songs. Yeah, we talked about the Picasso guitar, all these different tones that it's so you know, beyond just the classic jazz sound. And of course, your, your original sound, which was different than anybody else, you know, going back to you know, Bright Size Life. That was a very unique sound. Was that always a, a goal just to well, be different from everybody else and have all these multiple sonic options? I will say that for me, you know, I'm kind of of a generation 
um, where coming up with your own sound was a mandate. You were supposed to do that, you know? Somewhere in there that changed, you know? It's like, I can almost place it to like 1980 or so, Mm -hmm. where suddenly it was like, wow, you sound just like Wayne Shorter. That's great. You know, as opposed to like many generations where it's like, yeah, he's a good player. I mean, he just sounds too much like Wayne, you know? All right, I'm jumping in here, but for a very good reason. If you want to hear where Pat is going, that is all on part one. Many of you have already heard that. As I mentioned before, the guitar synth talk had preceded what we just heard, and that was moved here. But everything else is on part one. So now let's fast forward and resume where we are here in part two. When we left off, Pat was talking about touring on the Shadows and Light tour with Joni Mitchell and the late great bassist Jocko Pistorius, whom he talks about further here. The band was a really good band. And also, you know, I mean, Jocko and I were always very close friends. You know, Mm -hmm. he became a different person after he joined Weatherport for a variety of reasons Mm -hmm. that was difficult for me to relate to. He was one of the few people I'd ever met who was like me in the sense that you know, I, to this day, I've never had a drink or done any drugs or anything at all. Jocko, right? wow. Jocko was like that too. We were kind of like brothers in arms in that respect. Uh-huh. And when he joined Weather Report, he became a different Jocko. And, wow. but in that band also, that was Mike Brecker, who was struggling around that time. He and I became very close friends during that period, which then immediately led to the record 8081. 81. I, I love 8081. Yeah. Which is kind of the record where Brecker, according to him, this is him saying it, not me. That was the uh-huh. record that he became Mike Brecker in a lot of ways. Hmm. He had never made his own record before that, hmm. even though he was, you know, beloved by everybody. In the right. Record. On a million sessions. Yeah. A million sessions. Uh-huh. But, you know, and he went right from that session to uh, rehab. <laughs> oh, wow. and became the other Mike Brecker too, you know? So that tour was a fulcrum point in both directions. Yeah. Incredible story. So it's amazing that, you know, like we can speak about Joni Mitchell. I think James Taylor was an influence. You mentioned oh, that yeah. at one point, but also Derek Bailey, the music I, I was checking out recently. That's, you know, a little bit more of on the left turn side of things so i checked out zero tolerance for silence which is considered one of your uh it could even be described as controversial (laughs) all right i'm going to interrupt myself here because i just want to shed a bit of light on zero tolerance for silence for those who aren't familiar so the album came out in the early mid 90s and by that point Pat already had a few albums under his belt that could be described as challenging listening. For example, the album Rejoicing had quite a few moments that were done in tribute to Ornette Coleman, but people could say, "Okay, well, he's paying tribute to Ornette Coleman." And of course, Ornette had been a musical revolutionary who pioneered a type of improvisation in which the challenge is to be musically expressive while throwing the traditional guidelines of music out the window. And according to Wikipedia, iconoclast is a term that has come to be figuratively applied to any individual who challenges, quote, cherished beliefs or venerated institutions on the grounds that they are erroneous or pernicious, unquote. 
Now, Ornette Coleman made an entire career playing music that was considered unconventional, challenging, and some might say iconoclastic. Meanwhile, the vast majority of Pat Metheny's music has been embraced by what we might call the establishment, the downbeat critics poll, the Grammy Awards, and so on and so forth. So naturally, some listeners were taken aback by a few of the moments on Rejoicing, Pat's album where he paid tribute to Ornette Coleman. Song X ruffled even more feathers, yet still, nobody would call Pat an iconoclast. They might call him iconoclasm curious. After all, these albums were surrounded by other albums that cemented Pat's reputation as a critical favorite, a fan favorite, with chart positions, sales figures, and numerous awards to prove it. Pat's forays into the unconventional were like having a best friend that's into a weird hobby. Imagine, for example, your best friend is named John. He's always been there for you. You trust him. You can't imagine your life without him. But John is into these eating contests. It's weird. Next year, he's trying out for the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest on Coney Island. You don't get it. You don't understand it. You're not interested in it yourself. But he's your best friend. And you accept John, eating contests and all. Up until that point... That's kind of how it was with Pat and his forays into, quote-unquote, free jazz. And then Zero Tolerance for Silence came along. By this time, Pat was such a giant, he was virtually indestructible. But this is an album that could have completely derailed his career had it come out earlier. Let's put it this way. I once wrote a blog post about the collaboration between Metallica and Lou Reed that resulted in an album much maligned by Metallica's main fan base, the album called Lulu. And this blog post of mine got a bit of attention. I'm not saying that to brag. And I also don't want to name drop, but one person who read it was very involved with the creation of the album and went through the trouble to track me down and let me know that what I said was on point, man. You get it. <laughs> so besides comparing it to art that you're not supposed to understand and predicting that Metallica would go back to making albums that their fans are more used to, which is exactly what happened, by the way, I also compared Lulu to three other albums, all done by artists considered at the top tier of their respective areas of music. Each of these albums left their regular fans at most polarized and offended, and at the very least, scratching their heads. Those three albums were Metal Machine Music by Lou Reed, which, if you think about it, is a perfect parallel and a clue for what's going on with this mysterious collaboration between Metallica and Lou Reed himself. Two Virgins by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, which, if you look it up, will probably most often be described with one word, the same word most often used to describe the aforementioned album by Lou Reed. And that word is noise. And finally, the one other album I mentioned in this post was, of course, Zero Tolerance for Silence by Pat Metheny. And of course, that's a quick sample. And I realize I'm on a huge tangent here, but I think the context is important and the commentary worthwhile. We'll get Pat's take in a moment. I just want to finally add that 
a number of theories came out shortly after the album's release. One of the most notorious theories was posed by a critic who suggested that Pat was so fed up with Geffen Records by that point, this was a way of getting himself dropped by his record label. (laughs) Pat shot that theory right down and said, you know what? The guy could have just called me and asked me. I would have told him straight up. No, that's not true at all. Another theory was that Pat was influenced by some of the noise elements in popular music at the time. This was the early 90s, after all. So-called alternative music was a catchphrase, and bands like Sonic Youth were getting a lot of attention. And when Sonic Youth's Thurston Moore gave an enthusiastic plug to Pat's album, Zero Tolerance for Silence, it added to this theory. But that's not true either. Pat was not attending Lollapalooza in the 90s or glued to MTV's 120 Minutes. Nor is it true that my own theories about the Metallica-Lou Reed collaboration, although confirmed in that case, apply to Pat Metheny's Zero Tolerance for Silence. Having spoken to him about it, I can confirm that there are very sincere artistic motivations behind this album, and that he was as caught off guard by the negative reaction to it as he's been by some of the overwhelmingly positive reaction to some of his other projects. So on that note, let's hear a few more seconds of ZTFS and then commentary by the one person in the world qualified to speculate on this album. I think it's aged well. I think it maybe it was radical because your associations at that time and you'd have done these, you know, highly visible records that were accepted by radio, even though your stuff was so much more sophisticated than a lot of what was on quote unquote contemporary jazz radio. But that was almost like I don't know, it gets compared to like, you know, Lou Reed machine music. Or John Lennon, two versions. Yeah, just like a radical step in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, you know, because of the Missouri thing growing up out there, mm-hmm. my early years, there was a lot of space in it. And, and I carry that spaciousness with me to this day. I mean, I've got this 17 years of peace and quiet that's kind of embedded in there that I can and do go to often. Oh, that's interesting. Fortunately, though, Uh, I got out. I couldn't wait to get out. I was really ready to go. And my life from then on has been incredibly dense. I mean, I've lived in cities and I've been on, on the road and packed in more information and experiences in, in a week worth of time than most people ever have. You know, it's just, it's been this unbelievably condensed life, you know? And right around that time, I made a record, Secret Story, Mm -hmm. that if I think about it visually, was a record that was kind of intended to cover every inch of the canvas in paint. You know, Mm -hmm. it was like completely dense in a way, Uh but very specific. And you know, Zero Tolerance was made right then, too. And to me, that also is, if you think of it as a canvas, it's very oh. dense. There's no white on the canvas. Right, right Size Life, watercolors, right. early group stuff. There's a lot of space in that, right? Those records, there's no space in it. And 
You know, that I can say, but I had, as so often is the case, a Japanese person, a young woman journalist, explained to me how those two records go together in a way that was so perfect. I've said it since, and it's just exactly right. Her thing was, Secret Story was like this painting that had this river in the middle of the painting that, that was like, you know, with all these textures and colors in it. And then she said, zero tolerance is the river. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's right. <laughs> and it's not only that, it's like you're underwater in the river. But I mean, to me, oh, wow. You know, I do think in those kinds of visual terms a lot, but in a way that is not that literal. It's, it's yes. way more abstract than that. But for me, when I'm working on music and we all have this experience of you're working on a mix or something and you're doing all those mental illness type things like, right. we, you know, 0.2 dB at, you know, 94 <laughs> you know, all this weird stuff we do yes. unless you do it the record is ruined and it can't right. you know you go into like complete ridiculous right. zone. but then there's a point too where it's all done you go for a drive in your car and you're listening to it and you know there's always the you know people who come up and they say oh i love on first circle that part where you know it gets all purple right Right. The <laughs> interpretation. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, wow, what is that? But then, you know, there's always a moment for me when something's done where I can turn it off, you know, all that weird stuff. And I just like go around a corner while the music is going on right. and it resonates somehow with something. Mm -hmm. And so no that, micromanagement, no yeah. technical and, thoughts. Yeah. Just, and, you know, that's something that I used to have it more. And actually, this was something that was really great about working with Lyle, uh -huh. because we both understood okay, so, so much of the same stuff. He's the only person I would ever relinquish any control at yeah. all to, because I am known quite correctly as a <laughs> benevolent dictator of the whole yeah. thing. Well, it's for a good cause. Well, you know, I, whatever, it all goes together, but... And you're a nice guy too. So like, <laughs> dictator doesn't. Yeah, I usually am, am not too too harsh about the stuff. friendly but, dictator. Yeah, <laughs> but you dictator know, with I, a smile. It was possible when we were working on stuff where I knew it was all cool, so I could do it. I could like yeah. turn it off, and I could not hear it as G minor seventh with blah blah blah. I could just hear it, and it was really valuable to be able to do that. You know, and that even went away in that because I became more concerned about stuff as time went on. But, you know, there's something about going out and driving where it's really the first time I ever hear anything. And that's when I start to see whatever this, you know, where this all started was the visual connection between music and sound and, and all that. And it's something that is so abstract it's buried it's like underground in the foundation of hmm. you know whatever i hope to be coming up with but i always lay the pipe for it it's yeah. somehow it's like something that i really want to be in there regardless of what the content is whether it's you know zero tolerance for silence or a secret story somewhere in there there's a visual i hope there to be some visual utility for it for someone somewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's the journalist's description of it, and I don't know if it's because she's from Japan, but it reminds me of the 
Haruki Murakami novel, Kafka on the Shore, which I don't know if you've read that. It's about this painting. I think you'd enjoy it. It's, uh, there's a similarity there. Yeah, I just wrote it down, so I'm going to check it out. Yeah, yeah. And what I, the way I do these podcasts, I play samples of the music. I'll jump in and do commentary. So it's not just a conversation. But this will be amazing because I want to play some of Secret Story and Zero Tolerance for Silence. Cool, man. All right. So this will be the final extracurricular commentary for this episode. I just want to add that the book that came up just now, Haruki Murakami's Kafka on the Shore, has been brought up by Brian Koppelman on his podcast. And if you don't know his name, Brian Koppelman is the creator of the excellent Showtime series Billions with lots of music references. So Brian Koppelman recommends rereading Kafka on the Shore once you've read it uh, within a short time period, too. He says you'll see it in a whole new light and find clues that you missed the first time around. So I am planning to reread it. Oh, and by the way, music does play an important role in the book, as does painting, as does water. So it's pretty fascinating hearing Pat's story about the Japanese journalist sharing the connections that she felt between his albums, Zero Tolerance for Silence and Secret Story. And I know a lot of musicians who've read Murakami. I'm a bit surprised Pat isn't aware of this book, but I'm really happy to be the one that turns him on to it. I hope he enjoys it. And you've already heard a little bit of Zero Tolerance for Silence. So let's hear a few short clips from Secret Story. just ask you one more thing you know you're just so hyper creative seems like there's at least an album a year <laughs> i'm just wondering if well two-part question one is that a goal is that something you plan every year and do you have a daily routine your pat machine what, what <laughs> do you have a daily morning routine or anything like that you know the unsung hero over the last 40 some years in my life uh, has been Steve Rodby, who was the bass uh, player in my band for yep. years. Still one of the great bass players I've ever played with. He's amazing. Yep. And he's had a lot to do with a lot of things for me. I mean, in every possible way. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm mentioning him because his description of me to someone once I thought was very accurate, which is that I'm kind of compulsively productive. <laughs> and, you know, it could be, it could have gone really wrong, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it happens in my case that, uh-huh. yeah, I wake up at 4.35 in the morning, every morning, and I start working on music. And I can't wait to go to bed at night so I can get up and start, you know, working on this stuff. And it may be that, I mean, I just finished writing a 20 some minute piece for marimba and clarinet. Uh And I mean, I just can't wait to get at it and, you know, deal with that. And then now I'm doing a track that, you know, Antonio wanted me to participate in with Dave Matthews like you know total like beyond description in terms of just hardcore using all kinds of stuff to get to the thing unpredictable they couldn't be more different but Mm -hmm. in both cases I can't wait to get up and start working on them or I've got this you know new band and I'm I've written a whole bunch of new music for these guys specifically for them, you know, and it's like that all the time. I'm just always working on something. And as far as anybody ever hearing it, I mean, it'd be nice if they did, but I don't want this to sound snotty. I don't really care if anybody hears it or not. Mm -hmm. For me, I'm doing it because I just want to know what's going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. That's, and and, I hope somebody would mind hear it. And, I never expected anybody to know me or what I did or the thing. I mean, that was never part of it. I just wanted to like understand basically. And that's still what it is for me. I just want to understand like, how does this work? What could this be? You know, and that for me is enough right there. Well, that's enables you to do these projects, even though fans of some of your work might not relate to them. You You don't care. Even my mom didn't like everything. Yeah. <laughs> she, I remember when Song X came out, she said, Pat, yeah. I just, you know, why do you do that? Yeah, I just don't like the saxophone, first of all. And <laughs> I just didn't understand it. And I'm like, it's okay, mom. <laughs> yeah. I, that, I, that's such, a, such an important point because I think so many artists spend so much mental energy worried about what others think and what. What do the critics think and what do their peers think? And yeah, you're and, not doing it for those reasons. You're doing it. And honestly, reasons. whenever somebody's worried about that, they're guessing. Mm-hmm. They don't know. I mean, you know, that's the trouble with that is that, um, you know, I mean, you know, the example I always use for this is, you know, and I bet you've had this happen too. You, mm-hmm. You're playing the gig, people are digging it, except for the cat on the front row who hasn't applauded for one note of the night and is kind of like vibing you and kind of like you know smirking and we've all had that yeah yeah we've all had that but then that's the guy that comes up after the gig and says shit changed my life man walk (laughs) away you've made up this whole story that this guy is like vibing you and all that stuff and then your biggest fan and they're often the worst i have to say are is the guy that's going to come up he's been at like nine gigs and he's the guy who's going to say yeah seemed like you're really having trouble tonight on better days ahead 
What was happening? What was wrong? Yeah, you played it so much better. Yeah, exactly. One show I went to. So really, it's best to just, I mean, the only thing you know for sure is you, what you love and what you think is good. Anything other than that, you're just, you know, whistling in the wind. Yeah, Uh, and their tastes change too. Totally. And be your own worst critic too. You know, that's not to say, you know, I go home every night and write 10 pages of notes. Mm-hmm. And believe me, it's brutal. You, you know? do, huh? Oh, yeah. that's I've, I've been doing that for almost 40 years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's that's very the opposite easy. of like, you know, there's a technique of writing pages in the morning. You no, know? for me, it's really useful. Nice. Because, you know, you play the gig and most of the time people like it sort of at the end uh-huh. and clap and it's easy to go, ah, I guess it was okay. Nobody died or anything, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I guess it was all right. But right. I find if I go home and I kind of replay the set while it's fresh in my mind, it's like, oh, yeah, the fourth tune, once again, when it got to that transition, I completely messed up my part. So I got to work on that. And not just me. Again, it's band leader thing. Like, I really got to talk to so-and-so about not playing a D flat on that you know, lead, you know, whatever. And, you know, it really adds up to be quite useful. And also I make notes about, you know, the gig itself, the promoter, the venue, what wow. tunes we played. So that oh, that's amazing. Not, yeah. Super useful for me. And yeah. also that thing that I talk about a lot, you know, fine line between super useful and pure flat out mental illness. Right. Right. So <laughs> I, I kind of, I, I try to stay right on the good side of that line. It could, you know, again, you got some great quotes. I mean, that's a great <laughs> one. I've quoted you about being the, try to be the worst person in your band. <laughs> good one. That's a good one. Or at least hire people that you can learn from. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the thing now for me is that I, you know, cause I, I do, I love hearing what young cats, uh-huh. sound like in fact i realized since i was the beneficiary of a lot of older cats talking to me about all kinds of things on the bandstand and off you know i am in a, in a little bit of a position to offer those things yeah but i also want to get cats who like man what was that chord you just played and man yeah. what is that groove and where did that come from and how can i you know, I don't know how to do that one. Like, you know, what's that? So, and you, you know, remember all these details too, even if it's late at night after the gig and it's a, yeah. an exhausting two set gig. Well, I would definitely remember it better right after the gig than I would the next day. That's for right. Sure. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, when you, when you go, you're on the bus and you're playing, you know, seven different cities in seven nights, man, it can blur together that what, wherever you were four nights ago, seems like six months ago. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's so great to know. Well, thank you so much, Matt. This is a real pleasure. Great talking um, to you. And I, and yeah, I should have said right off the bat. Yeah. I'm totally hip to your thing, ma'am. You're a no major player. You're, you thank play you. your ass off, man. I had no idea you knew. Yeah. I haven't yeah, think I, knows I exist. That's hey, like, man, you know, you, you know, you're, you're one of the cats, <laughs> man. So when I heard that I was going to get to do this with you, I was very happy about it. So thank oh, you really, really for inviting you. me. Oh, wow. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go retire to cloud nine. Thus marks the conclusion of the Moods and Modes podcast. I'm kidding, of course, but that would be a great note to go out on. Thank you, Pat. That's too kind. These two episodes have been very special. 
I'm going to be listening back to them again. I'm inspired just doing edits to this episode. Hopefully you're inspired too. I think they should study Pat. Just what an example of positivity, productivity, and gift to the world. So huge thanks to Pat, his team, Taylor Perry, Matt Hanks, and Max Lefkowitz, our own Kirsten Cluthy for coordinating. And of course, this would not have been possible without you, the listeners. So thank you. Moods and Modes is produced by yours truly and presented by Osiris Media. Production for Osiris by Kirsten Cluthy and Brad Stratton. Final edits and mixes by Justin Thomas of Revoice Media. Opening music by yours truly. Closing music by yours truly. Joined by Nathan Peck on the bass and Matt Zabrowski on the drums. Artwork by Mark Dowd. To discover more podcasts that help you connect more deeply to the music you love, check out osirispod.com. Finally, extra special thanks to all our Patreon supporters. See the cool stuff you guys are making happen? Thank you, thank you. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. And simply hitting subscribe, leaving us a review, or just telling your friends about the podcast is greatly appreciated as well. So that's it. Episode 22 in the books. Our pair of Pat Metheny episodes is concluded. Thank you once again. Take care, be safe, and see you on the next episode. Osiris. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about the April-May 2023 issue of Relics Magazine. It features a Dave Matthews Band cover story with additional articles and interviews with The National, Graham Nash, Wayne Shorter, ALO, Ivan Neville, our friend Eric Krasno and Stanton Moore, Marty Stewart, and much more. Check out the latest version of Relics and subscribe now at relics.com slash DMB. Thanks, Relics. Hi, this is Henry K., host of the number one music history podcast, Rootsland. Come with me on a journey to Kingston, Jamaica, where we explore the world of reggae music and the untold stories of some of the genre's greatest legends. From the ghettos and tenement yards where the music was born to the island's iconic recording studios. We are so excited to team up with Osiris Media, the leading storyteller in music. Because as you'll hear, sometimes the story is the best song.